Medic 43, District 1, Engine 51, Response, Cardiac Arrest. Hello, everyone. Welcome again to another edition of the MCHD Paramedic Podcast. This is Dr. Casey Patrick. And joining me today is one of our regular guests, our cardiac coordinator here at MCHD, Brad Wart. Hey there. And Brad and I are both a little more excited than normal to talk about today's uh, podcast topic. We're going to tell you all about the arrest trial. This is non-COVID. Yippee. Thank God. The arrest trial was just released in Lancet just a couple weeks ago. So big time journal. What did they look at? They looked at regular standard ACLS for refractory VF versus eCPR. So before we go any further down the line, it's a perfect spot for an overview. Tell us a little ECMO basic, Brad, and what eCPR is. So anybody that knows me knows that they can get me way off topic from anything onto ECMO when they want to. So ECMO is extracorporeal membrane oxygenation. And what that is, basically you have a line going in and a line going out and blood is taken out of the body and it's oxygenated and put back in the body. So it's, it's akin to cardiac bypass, but not quite. There's two different types. There's venovenous and then there's venoarterial. Venovenous is just take venous blood out and put venous blood back in and the heart is working just like it normally does. It just gives the lungs a break. And then veno arterial is where, just like it sounds, you have a venous blood going out and you have arterial blood coming in and it pumps in a way that it bypasses the heart a little bit and can provide extra support for cardiovascular functions. And in this case, eCPR is using ECMO during a time of CPR as augmented perfusion. So it's a super exciting idea because it lets you get a better flow, keep all of your organs perfused in a better way than just standard ACLS. At least that's the idea. And Dr. Yiannopoulos from University of Minnesota has done amazing things with ECMO. I've been following him pretty closely and stalking him. Um, and it's, it's gotten to the point where it's, he's been able to prove some really interesting things. So this was the first randomized trial of standard ACLS versus ECMO-assisted CPR. And realistically, if you think about it, you know, what do we normally do in these patients, right? They present in VF, right, refractory VF. Most of the time, you know, we, we know these patients have a very, very high incidence of, you know, coronary occlusion. So they've got a 100% left main lesion, for example, we pound on their chest and we give them, you know, medications. But if you've got a 100% left main lesion, that's pretty difficult to overcome. So the idea being you put the patient on pump, you oxygenate for them. Like, just like Brad said, you oxygenate their kidneys, you oxygenate the brain, most importantly, the other vital organs, while the cardiologists and the CT surgeons can go in and reperfuse the patient. That's the entire goal is you put the patient on pump so that you can intervene on the cause of the refractory VF and then allow the patient to recover. So who was included and excluded in this study? Getting into some of the study details. This study included 18 to 75 year old patients who presented with an initial shockable rhythm with no return of spontaneous circulation after three shocks. Basically the standard as standard definition as there is for refractory VF or electrical storm. 
These patients were included if they had an estimated transfer time of less than 30 minutes. They were excluded if they were DNR, trauma, overdose, pregnant, prisoner, extended care facility patient, terminal cancer patient, if they had an opt-out bracelet on, uh, severe contrast allergy, or active bleeding. And all of those really make sense because they're not true cardiac refractory VF. There's likely another underlying cause or their comorbidities before cardiac arrest are so severe that a viable outcome is really not obtainable. It makes sense. I have, I have no issues with those exclusion criteria, Brad, would you agree? Yeah, I think that's perfectly appropriate, especially the contrast allergy. It was an interesting new twist on it for me because these people are going to the cath lab and they are going to get a massive dose of, of contrast. And realistically, you know, been out there taking care of patients for, for years now, as have I, true contrast allergy anaphylaxis is pretty darn rare. So that's not going to exclude a ton of patients, but you're correct. These are being put on ECMO to oxygenate while they're getting cast. And right. to do that, they're going to get a dilode and a large dilode at that. Um, the patients were excluded if spontaneous circulation was obtained, return of spontaneous circulation was obtained before the third shock, right? Because that's not refractory VF. That patient has a pulse back. We support them. We get them cathed as soon as uh, deemed necessary by the you know, by the cardiologist and the emergency department teams. That's one, especially with our recent discussion of the COAC trial that's a little bit, little bit debatable depending on the stability of the patient. Um, if the patient got ROSC after the third shock, um, that did not exclude them from the study. However, it didn't look like there were any of those patients that actually occurred in the study group. There was 15 patients in each group initially uh, one ECMO patient opted out at day three. So that's that's a little bit about the inclusion and exclusion criteria. Uh, what outcomes were measured, Brad? So the primary outcome that they looked at was survival to hospital discharge, uh, which is pretty standard in any sort of arrest, cardiac arrest trials. Uh, the secondary outcomes were the safety and survivability, and then the functionality at discharge, three months and then six months. They defined functional as a modified Rankin score of three or lower and a CPC or cerebral performance category of two or lower. And okay. so those are pretty walkie-talkie patients that have maybe some deficits but still have a good quality of life, understand where they are, can have relationships with their family. And when we talk about outcomes, when we do any literature-type review here at MCHD, you know, patient-oriented outcomes are key, right? Not a BNP value, for example, that's right. not a patient oriented outcome. That's a lab oriented outcome, Absolutely. you know, and the primary outcome here was survival to discharge, which is our goal in cardiac arrest, not ROSC, not a, you know, a lactate level or a PO2 level. Our goal is do these patients walk out of the hospital and then secondary outcomes are very reasonable as well. How good was their functionality? So did they walk out on their own? and go home to have dinner with their grandchildren? Or were they, you know, bed bound with a tracheostomy and a feeding tube? Yeah, and machine dependent for the rest of their life. And we will include links to the modified Rankin score and the cerebral performance uh, category scoring in the show notes. Won't bore you with reading through those. They're pretty 
straightforward, very, very commonly used in the stroke literature and out-of-hospital cardiac arrest and cardiac arrest literature as well. When and where did this occur? This was between Oct or excuse me, August of 2019 and June of 2020, so almost a year. It was a single-center study at the University of Minnesota. There were three EMS transport systems that were involved in the study. So, again, when you talk about limitations in any study, you know, a single center is always going to be limited as compared to, you know, a multi-center trial. But again, this is a start. Um, how was the study performed? Well, what happened to these patients is when refractory VF occurred that fit the inclusion-exclusionary criteria that we already talked about, the patients were then randomized, which is, again, when we talk about the hierarchy of literature, randomization is important, right? It, it's one step that helps to eliminate bias. And so these patients were randomized into immediate ECMO and cardiac catheterization group or standard ACLS in the emergency department. And that was blinded randomization. So again, that just increases the, the strength of this study and how quote, believable, unquote, we can take this information as when we consider bias and sources of bias in, in the data collection. And we hear a lot about double blind trials being the gold standard for everything. But in a case like this, it's not really possible to double blind it, is it? There's no way to pretend like someone's yeah, not on ECMO to shield an investigator from whether or not the patient is getting ECMO or not. There is a way to, sh to shield the investigators from which patient is chosen to go down the ECMO cath route to or to the emergency department standard ACLS route because that choice was made before they entered into that decision and they were they were blinded into that that was made by you know investigators who were not not involved, involved at all in, in patient care in the catheterization so or the ECMO it's as blind as it can be exactly now if you're going to give let's think about maybe TXA and you know the studies we talked about with TXA crash and and matters and those studies you can give a sham saline dose of what might be TXA what might be placebo right. and you can double blind the investigators to which groups the patients are in and which treatment they receive in this situation, you can only blind them to. It would be ridiculous to put somebody on pretend ECMO. Yeah, there's, I don't, there's, that's physically impossible, I would say. So hopefully. So what did the what did the standard ACLS group get? They got at least 15 minutes of continued resuscitation upon arrival to the ED, or until 60 minutes from the arrest, which is pretty standard for refractory VF. If they arrive in my emergency department, I'm generally going to work those patients for a continued amount of time. I typically do not work even refractory VF out past 60 minutes because, you know, generally that's, that's a fairly consistent mark of futility. If the patients did get return of spontaneous circulation, the standard group got immediate angiography in this study. Um, all patients, if they survive to a hospital admission, got cardiac ICU care, standardized hypothermia. They got head CTs at arrival and on day three, they got continuous EEG and neuroprognostication was delayed until 72 hours. And this was, this was all standardized uh, in, in both groups. So one of the things when we look at any randomized studies is you go straight to table one. And table one is the demographics that compares the two groups.
So were the groups familiar? And this one looks, looks pretty similar uh, down each column. All patients were refractory VF. The, some of the things you might think about that when we compare out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, what are some of those things that you might ask, Brad, that could be potentially different between the group? Yeah, you want to look at if it was a witnessed arrest or not. You want to look at did you have bystander CPR? You want to look at the time from arrest to arrival at the hospital. And keep in mind, these people, they were working with three different transporting agencies, so there had to be a, a great deal of coordination. But it looks like everybody is rather similar in the two groups as far as witnessed bystander CPR and then the time to arrival to the ED. Some other things that you might want to look for as well. What about the pre-hospital ACLS treatments? You know, time to epidose. How many doses of epi? Number of epidoses, those sort of things. Those were all similar between groups. No patients had ROSC upon arrival. So that patient that got ROSC on the fifth shock or the sixth shock that could have theoretically been included in this study, that didn't, didn't appear to occur. And these were super sick patients. Um, the hospital arrival lactate was between 10 and 11. pH was 6.9 to 7. Our end titles were somewhere in the 30 range, end title CO2. So these were, these were super sick post-arrest patients, which is what we expect to see. Now, what this also tells me, though, is, you know, a lot of times, especially when we've talked in the past about VF patients who present to the ED with return of spontaneous circulation and without a STEMI, we, you and I, I think, agree that those patients' shockable rhythms warrant immediate catheterization. And many times, some of the lab values that are tossed around to say, wait a minute, these patients are too sick are that lactate of greater than seven or eight, you know, pH less than seven. And these patients were that sick. I mean, they, they, yeah, were, they were, they were the sickest of the sick. They were poorly perfused, right? They just w- underwent cardiac arrest with, you know, refractory ventricular fibrillation. So they should be, have high lactates. They should have low pH. You know, we're trying to do CPR the best that we can bridge them to the hospital. But the key break point here is that we're not going to continue doing that same thing and expect miraculous results we're going to take them to the lab we're going to try to unclog their plumbing while we use ECMO to oxygenate that's that's the that's the big the big kicker here and the big difference there were six patients that were excluded two were found to be PEA after the hospital arrival so they weren't true refractory VF so they were excluded one patient was found to have a transport time greater than 30 minutes uh, they were excluded and three were found to have ROSC after second shock. So you could be a skeptic and say, oh, they excluded the patients that were going to give you bad outcomes. And I guess if you think about the two PEAs and the one prolonged transport time, those could potentially give you worse outcomes, right? But they're also not the patient group that you're studying. But in fairness to the investigators, they could have kept in the three ROSCs after the second shock. Because those have a really good outcome chance. That's a, that's a better outcome. So yeah. that that to me indicates, you know, a fair treatment of the study groups. Always in any study, we want to look at funding and disclosures. You know, who's paying for the study? Is it the drug company? Is it the device company? And the only funding and disclosures really of note in this study was NIH funding, which is appropriate. And pretty standard. Pretty standard, right? So let's 
cut to the chase, enough suspense. What did they find? And this really, really is, I can't do all caps and bold and exclamation point in my voice, but this was absolutely stunning in all caps. The survival to discharge in the ECPR group was 43% versus 7% with standard ACLS. Repeat that for the listeners, Brad. Yeah, that's insane. The survival to discharge in ECPR was 43% versus 7% with standard ACLS therapy. That's crazy. That's the ACLS survival that we expect. It's, and this is refractory VF who has dismal, dismal, dismal mortality data from, from, you know, even 7% is still probably higher than reality, you know, which it's pretty ambitious, which is what they got in the standard group. Considering the, the, the demographics of the patients they studied, it's, it's pretty, pretty ambitious at 7%. 43 is outrageous. So naysayers out there are going to say, yeah, but they were all traked and pegged, right? Nope. At six months, all six ECMO survivors had modified ranking score of three or lower, meaning they were fairly independent. Fairly independent. They may have had some disability, but they still had the capacity to enjoy life and form meaningful relationships. Only two of 15 standard ACLS care patients made it to cath. One died in the hospital from cerebral edema and the other after discharge from anoxic injury. And those are two of the main things we see about what was the cause of death in the hospital, anoxic brain injury. What was the cause of death? Cerebral edema. Those are pretty standard. And dismal outcomes with refractory VF is standard. That's why here at MCHD, one of our, you know, current ongoing studies and one of our research uh, focuses is Esmol in this group. Everyone out there is trying to figure out how to bridge this group to decent survivals because in refractory VF, so many of these patients have acute coronary occlusion. We know what the problem is. We just have to get them stable enough to the treatment, which is revascularization, right? Two in the ECMO group were declared dead prior to ECMO cannulation. And how did they, de- how did they determine who those patients were? They used cutoffs of entitled less than 10, PAO2 less than 50, or lactate greater than 18. So entitled less than 10, PAO2 less than 50, or a lactate greater than 18. If they had two of those, any two, they were declared dead. So they, they didn't go forward with ECMO and futile care. Six ECMO patients died prior to discharge or before discharge due to anoxia and cerebral edema. Again, very common cause of death in not anoxic un- yeah, not unexpected. arrest patients. No unanticipated ECMO complications were seen in the study. What were some of the anticipated complications? Uh, there was a couple access site bleeds. There was a retroperitoneal bleed. Uh, there was a one patient that had a tubing break. These are all things that, you know, realistically are going to occur with ECMO. And really the most powerful point in this study, if you, if you want to be, uh, I'm going to throw stones at this, you're going to say, wait, there was 30 patients in the study. This was really small. Why was there only 30 patients? They actually planned this study to have quite a bit more than 30 patients. But the outcomes were so superior and so much better with eCPR. The data safety monitoring board, basically the unaffiliated group that watches research studies and says, is everything being handled fairly here? Are these patients being treated equally? Is 
you know, is there equipoise with one of the words often that's used basically, you know, is this fair? Is this ethical? They stepped in and said, whoa, it is unethical with the system you have set up here at the University of Minnesota to continue treating refractory VF out of hospital cardiac arrest with standard ACLS when we've got this ECMO-assisted CPR option over here with outcomes as good as these are. So the, the data safety monitoring board stopped the study mid-study and said we, it's unethical to continue putting people in a standard ACLS group. And think about what that means for what we all do. Now, you know, that's, it's, you know, unethical to continue ACLS in the presence of an ECMO recess center. Now, are these results generable to us here in Montgomery County, to most people around the nation? What would you say, Brad? I would say no at this point, because I think we lack the, we lack the robust and established ECMO programs to support this right now. They're able to be developed but the framework isn't in place at the moment. So what's this require? It requires coordination of care across EMS, ED, cath lab, ICU, even into rehab, right? Yep. So we at MCHD can say, all right, we're going to shock the third time. And if it's still VF, we're going to load and go. And we're going to deliver these patients to the hospital in, in 12 to 17 minutes. So they're under that 30-minute cutoff and they can be cannulated, placed on pump, cast and revascularized and we can enjoy the the 43 survival rate too that only works though if somebody's waiting for you with an ecmo machine and the ability to cannulate and then having a cardiology team that's willing to take patients who are effectively dead in most cases on ecmo to their cath lab that's a big deal for them to make that decision right and then you have to have intensivist pulmonologist icu specialist neurologist who are all ready to care for these patients after they come out of the lab, still on pump for an unknown time period to delay prognostication, right? You've got to give these patients a chance to neurologically survive. You can't, you know, if you're going to put all this effort in up front, you can't be willing to, you know, close the door too quickly on these patients. So it really requires an entire system of care, a term we like to throw around here at MCHD. But it's true in this case, this is not just an EMS decision. It's not just an ED decision. It's an entire system of care that has to be set up. And again, kudos to the, the folks in, uh, in Minneapolis, kudos to Dr. Yiannopoulos and all of his partners who have put together this, you know, amazing system. The outcome really speaks for itself, right? 43% survival to discharge versus 7%. That's uh, yeah, it's a remarkable system of care they put together. So what are the limitations? Limitations, we already talked about single center and small numbers. So ideally in the future, we'll see multi-center trials with larger numbers. But if you look at these survival rates with eCPR in these patients and you go back to some of the retrospective studies before this, some of the you know case control and some of the smaller studies, this is the survival they've been reporting in these patients for really four or five years now. So this is yeah, this it, is not out on an island. No, less than, in the last 10 years, they've really come a long way with, with ECMO and, and the machines being made smaller and portable and the coagulation problems. ECMO is over 75 years old and they would, they would get as far as they could go with the technology at that time and then realize problems they couldn't overcome and put it in a closet and hide it away 
until someone overcame that problem and then they'd give it a try again. This time when they gave it another try, it seems to be working. So what, you know, you want to put this together. We, we obviously would love to have an ECMO center in Montgomery County. What are some of the things this is going to require a program like this and realistically a dedicated recess center like we talked about? You know, 24-7 ECMO availability with cardiology, CT surgery, ICU, you know, pulmonology, neurology buy-in, emergency department buy-in, EMS buy-in. And in the study, one of their one of their quotes was, and this is important to us in the EMS realm, is the time from 911 call to ECMO is the number one predictor of survival in these patients. So if and when, I'm gonna say when we roll this out in Montgomery County. That's, that's a number that we actually have a big role in controlling, and that is recognizing these patients, recognizing the inclusion and exclusion criteria, and then we would have to flip a switch at MCHD because we don't always transport these patients, right? But if we had a third shock and a continued VF and we wanted to roll this out, it would be immediate, rapid, lights and silence transport. This would be a true time-sensitive emergency. This is expensive. It's labor-intensive, absolutely. But 40% plus survival with decent, good functional outcomes at six months seems like a worthwhile worthwhile chore, to be honest. Incredible. So one of the other final quotes I'll leave you with from the study is, without the broader medical community coalition to coordinate each step of care and facilitate transfer to a high-volume ECMO center, these results would not have been possible. So the authors themselves basically summed up what we just talked about in the study. So let's take it home. ECPR, is it ready for prime time, Bradley? Not quite, but it's got amazing possibilities. It's time to start building bridges. It's time to start exploring possibilities, thinking about this in your own communities with your hospital partners. This, this really, really is an intriguing study. Refractory VF has dismal outcomes. This is a patient population that's ripe to improve on. This is really low-hanging fruit. Here at MCHD, we're doing our work with, with Esmolol in this patient population. Stay tuned for our data, which we're close to, close to wrapping up on. Stay tuned for more, more ECMO data, and we'll leave you with, with the end numbers, which I can't repeat enough times. Survival to hospital discharge. Refractory ventricular fibrillation. Out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. 43%. With ECMO, 7% with standard ACLS. We definitely have room to improve. Anything you'd like to add before we wrap up, Brad? I think that covers it. As always, thanks for listening. Thanks for joining us today. If you have questions or comments, please email us at the podcast email, podcast at mchd-tx.org. Leave us a like or a review wherever you listen to your podcast. It always helps us out. And thanks for listening. Talk to you soon. This podcast was brought to you by the Montgomery County Hospital District, Texas. Production and editing by Andrew Adams. Questions or comments, which are always welcome, can be sent to podcast at mchd-tx.org. Make sure to subscribe above to keep updated to all our future casts. Music, copyright, Kevin McLeod, and Competech.com. Licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0.